everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of the MTG Grindcast, the spikiest podcast in all of Central North Carolina with a special focus on the SCG Tour. We are your hosts. I'm Chris Kasserapple, and with me as always is SCG uh, almost everything champion at this point, Collins Mullen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Hey guys, Uh, what's up? Yeah, now I just need uh, an invitational win and then we will run the gauntlet. Yep, so uh, for those of you who don't know, you won the, the Open two weeks ago with Modern Humans, and then this past weekend you won... Regionals on Saturday, and then decided you hadn't had enough magic for the weekend, and won uh, an IQ on Sunday. So, uh, <laughs> all all with yeah. modern humans, and you didn't you didn't lose a match this past weekend either, right? No, yeah, uh, undefeated this past weekend as well. Yeah, so played regionals because I knew I was going to play regionals. That was kind of the tournament that I had queued up for this weekend. I knew I was playing humans. I think that people kind of still have yet to respect that deck and. I think that that just kind of proved to be true over the course of the weekend. I saw a bunch of people playing it, which was great. I think that almost made me feel better than, you know, my results. Just seeing a bunch of people playing humans, being excited about it. Um, And it looks like it's just like a new deck in Modern. In the IQ, I played against it in the semifinals. Uh, I didn't see it have too much success other than myself at the regionals tournament. But um, Mm -hmm. it was definitely around. So that felt pretty good. I'd, I'd say a certain number of people are picking it up just based on card prices alone. It looks like meddling mages are like $17 now. Yeah. Something like that. Meddling mage went up. Which, uh, ancient ziggurat went up. People were telling me about that and they were like, look what you've done. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, it feels good. I don't really know what to think about this past weekend because, I don't know, I'm still a little dazed about it all. The tournament in the Cincinnati Open felt pretty surreal. Right, where, you know, I just played a bunch of matches and then nobody beat me. And I was like, yep. okay, so, you know, maybe kind of just, like, was running really well or whatever. Right, you can have one you know, great we You get lucky sometimes. Nothing, right, right, nothing goes wrong for a while. Right, but. yeah. You know, you have to get lucky to win tournaments like that. But then, you know, I've just, like, continued playing humans and uh, it's continued to feel like that where I just kind of rolling people... And I, I keep on having the same experience over and over again where I, like, I sit down across from somebody and I'm like, all right, well, and they, like, play the first couple cards and then I know what they're on and I'm like, okay, this is probably a bad matchup for me. And then they just lose. And I'm like, uh, that was weird. <laughs> I don't know how much of it this weekend was uh, just because it was kind of, like, closer to a local event. The IQ definitely felt like a local event. Mm-hmm. The main reason why I even went to the IQ the next day on Sunday was because my girlfriend actually wanted to play in a tournament. Oh, cool. She was a little overwhelmed by playing in regionals, and she had other stuff going on that day. And she'd only started playing modern, like, last Thursday. We'd been teaching her how to play Merfolk. So I was like, okay, you know, good excuse to just kind of, like, get out again, play another tournament. Just having to win that one as well. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah, how did, how did Jen do with Merfolk? Um, her goal for the weekend was excellent. I really liked it. Her goal was to try to remember all of her triggers. <laughs> Maybe I need to set that goal every once in a while too. Yeah. Right. One of the things that I've been telling her is, you know, she started playing modern like a week ago. Right. So the expectations of winning matches are not yeah. really going to be there. And she did end up winning matches. I think she went two, three, which was fantastic. But, you know, uh, I really liked where her mindset was at, where, 
you know, she she understands that she's learning and just kind of needs to absorb more of the format. Like, she played against Affinity for the first time this past weekend, and that's, you know, when somebody dumps out, like, six cards on turn one and you don't know, understand or know what's going on, that's kind of a little bit much, right? <laughs> right, right. It's terrifying. You know, so she's just got to, you know, expose herself to, to the format a little more and magic in general. And one thing that she had been having trouble remembering was drawing a card off of Spreading Seas. So okay. I was like, all right, Jen, your objective this weekend is to, you know, try to remember to draw a card off of Spreading Seas. That's, I think that's an, a good, like, first step into getting better at magic, is to try to remember all the things that, you know, you, you, everybody probably at a certain level just takes for granted, right? Like, Spreading Seas draws me a card. Excellent. But, you know, if, some, if somebody's new to the game, you know, these are things that you have to keep up with. Your upkeep vial triggers, your drawing cards, all the stuff that I know that I take for granted just because I've been playing for so long, but it's just interesting kind of like putting myself back at that level and trying to understand what she needs to know in order to like progress as a player. Yeah, cool. Well, it sounds like she's having fun with it at least. Yeah, definitely. Her her head's in the right mindset, I think, and she wants to get better and win, you know, so there, she's got that yeah. drive. <laughs> Um, yeah, which you know I think is important to a certain context. That is really cool. I I, I think it for it would probably be very easy for me to get frustrated. Like when I learned how to play Magic, I was ten years old, so mm-hmm. it wasn't too frustrating. I was like, of course these guys are beating me. They're twenty years old. Like why would I be able to beat them? Yeah, right. But right. now if I was learning, I think I would get frustrated a little too easily. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I mean you know that was kind of what my IQ experience was like. Is it, it was Jen's first competitive REL tournament. And you know, explaining everything that when goes along with that. Um, so yeah. her 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 uh, first Ariel tournament, your third win in two weeks. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know, man. I uh, I don't know if I've like cracked the code. The one thing that I do really, really, really want to preach is something that I noticed over the course of this past weekend and kind of at the Cincinnati Open is the one thing that I know that I did better than everybody else is mulligan decisions. It's so important in modern to mulligan the hands that are not good enough. Modern is such a powerful format. People are doing crazy busted things by turn four. You need to make sure that the hand that you're keeping has game. You shouldn't be afraid to mulligan to five. I think that over the course of the weekend, I mulligan to five a bunch, maybe 10 times, but fives that I kept were excellent, and I think that I won maybe like 80% of those. That's probably a little above average for a five, but but still, like, not that it was wrong to go to five. Right, you shouldn't be afraid of it, right? You shouldn't look at your yeah. six that you know isn't going to win and be like, well, here we are. You know, you still have another shot at a, a hand that could potentially win the game. Especially in matchups where it only takes, like, a particular combination of two or three cards to, to put it right. really out of right. reach for them. Yeah. And, like, a five with, like, two lands, Noble Hierarch, Manus Rider, X is probably just great, right? And much better than yeah. the six that's, like, four lands and two, three drops, right? Right, because th- this one, all you need to do is, like, like draw a Reflector Mage, and then the hand is great. With the other one, like, you miss your first two turns, and then you can never win that game. Right, ever. right, right, for sure. And kind of, like, from the uh, the opposite end of that, I'm noticing all my opponent make bad mulligan decisions. Like, my opponents kept seven, and then didn't do anything until turn three, right? Or my opponents 
would mulligan to six and then like play one land and then do nothing for the rest of the game and then show me like a bunch of like three drops and collected companies in their hand or something like that and i'm like you know you can go to five it's fine decks in modern are inherently powerful enough like you you can afford to be like lower on card count as long as you're still doing something proactive and powerful with the cards that you have right yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, if people are going to be playing Modern, I think that the one advice I can give is to uh, see if you can assess your mulligan decisions from that perspective, I guess. Yeah, I've noticed, you know, the same thing. I, I definitely, for some reason, it seems to be less of a problem online. Like, maybe just because it's easier to mulligan online, and you don't have to spend another minute shuffling and thinking, dang it, I'm down a card. But definitely in real life, I've, I've seen a lot of questionable mulligan decisions or, or just like people who want to keep this six because they feel like five is an auto loss right yeah and there's also the concept of in it's so easy to mulligan on magic online you can just click a button but you have to like go through the mechanics of putting your hand back right. shuffling again presenting to your opponent they shuffle and then you draw a new seven right right i think that subconsciously a lot of people don't want to just don't want to do that so they'll keep a seven just because or not keep a seven but you know keep a hand just because they don't want to like go through those mechanics and it's probably fine right is probably what they tell themselves i know that you know like a year ago i remember kind of like having that realization of wow i'm keeping so many hands just because i didn't want to mulligan and part of that reason that i didn't want to mulligan was because i didn't want to just i didn't want to do it uh, i wanted to get on with the match i was like <laughs> anxious to play more magic yeah I've, I've definitely felt that, and I've definitely used that as an excuse probably in the recent past. I, I'm still working on that aspect of my game. Right, yeah. So and I remember like a, maybe a year ago, that was something that was like something I noticed in myself. I was like, wow, I am really bad at mulliganing in paper just because I don't want to. <laughs> but like on Magic Online, I never had that problem. I just clicked the button and it mulligans for me. If you're, if you're thinking about your own game, definitely thinking about if you have any like weird cognitive biases that you might not realize yet. Yeah, and I'm trying to think of other examples of ones, but this is such a... The, the biggest decision you make in a Magic tournament is what deck you play. And then the second biggest decision is, like, tuning the deck. And then the third dis biggest decision, probably in any given match... You know, the biggest decision in gameplay in any given match is whether or not you're mulliganing that hand you get. And then a yeah. lot... You know, there's there's lots of plays you make during the game, but a reasonable number of them are, are kind of deterministic... Like, yeah. you don't have a ton of options. Uh, but that mulligan decision just is really going to kind of decide how the match plays out. Right, right. I might even go as far, in specifically in modern, to say that mulligan decisions are more important than deck selection. If, you're, <laughs> if your mulligan decisions aren't up to par, you could be playing the best deck in the format and not winning any matches. Oh, sure. But, but good mulligan doesn't... Right, you have to, you know, you have to... You have to reach a certain threshold in both categories. If you're playing a deck that's right, unplayable, right. it doesn't matter really how good you mulligan. Um, <laughs> you know, as long as you're playing a tiered modern deck, then you know, then I would definitely say that you know which of those twelve decks that you play doesn't matter as much as being able to be good at mulliganing. In my mind, yeah, yeah, I probably buy that. It's absolutely integral. It, no decision in a game makes a bigger difference than. Uh, switching seven cards out for a new six cards like that's mm -hmm. that's such a huge impact right 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 yeah and then you know it's it's a funny saying and i i say it a lot but you don't have to mulligan you get to mulligan 
right. you know, that's it's like a sweet little thing that they've done in Magic to make the games play out more smoothly. So you have to take advantage <laughs> of that resource, right? You, you get to mulligan. Yeah. You don't have to be stuck with your five land hand in modern. Yeah, so. and I found the more the more that I've played in a specific period of time, the more likely I am to mulligan because, you know, especially if I've played with the same deck over and over again and I've played a reasonable number of mulligan games, then I don't get that feeling of, ugh, I'm going to go to six and who knows what will happen, or I'm going to go to five and I have no... Well, but if I've played a bunch of games with the deck, I've gone to five, I know what can happen, mm-hmm. um, and if I know that I can win with five, that helps me make that decision yeah. correctly. Right. Um, I, another mistake that I think that people make in testing a lot and, like, this happens every once in a while when I, like, sit down and I jam against some somebody, like, at a tournament hall or whatever. Like, I will we'll be playing a match, or not even a match, we'll just be playing games, right, to test a particular matchup. And I'll mulligan to six, and then I won't like it, so I'll ship it to five, and then my opponent will tell me, I just take get another six. I want to play a game. I just get another six. Uh, yeah. I think that if you're doing that, and if you're, whenever you're mulliganing, you're just getting sevens and sixes... You're doing yourself a huge disservice by not really understanding what fives are capable of and when you need to go to five. I think that you're just kind of like throwing away a bunch of testing equity by, by doing that. Uh, because something that you need to be practicing that they kind of like are throwing away and putting an easy button on is being able to make those tough mulligan decisions, right? It's like, oh, you know... If you're testing like that, you can just be like, all right, you know, any mediocre hand can go away and I'm just going to look for an excellent six. Magic in tournaments just doesn't work like that. You need to be mulliganing probably more than you think you are. Although, once you get down to the mulligan to four, I probably take the extra card my opponent's offering up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, you could definitely get to a certain point where like, okay, this is no longer productive, let's try again. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's true, you, especially in modern where individual cards or like synergies between two or three cards are so high impact mm-hmm. that that even if you're down a card or two, the if the game is ending super quickly or effectively ending super quickly, then then that doesn't always matter. You need to learn that about your deck. Yeah. Um, arguably the most important game I've ever played in my competitive career Game two, I was down a game playing against Todd Stevens for my winning in to top eight the Invitational, and I mulliganed to four with Dredge because I knew that none of the hands that I had seen beforehand were going to be able to get there. Mm-hmm. So I'm down a game, I mulliganed to four in you know probably the most important game of my Magic career at this point, and I win. And then I win the next game. And, you know, I think that had I decided to keep any of those other hands, I wouldn't have won. I, I was looking for a particular hand. So don't be afraid to, uh, to mulligan. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I think a lot of that probably comes... I, I mean, how much had you tested with Dredge up into that point? Like, did you really know for certain, like, this five is just not, not going to do it? I, like... Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of reps with Dredge at that point. I had played in like two opens and a bunch on Magic Online with Dredge going into this event, so I was very, very comfortable with knowing like what was gonna what was gonna work and what wasn't. Yeah, and, and I think those reps are are so important. Mm-hmm. Just I mean, if you're gonna play a deck seriously, especially in modern where the decks last forever, like get yeah. your reps in with the deck, and and it's gonna I mean it's gonna make the gameplay smoother too. You're gonna understand what to do with this Arcbound Ravager in, in places where you certainly wouldn't have figured it out before if you're playing Affinity. But 
that mulligan decision is just it's impossible to understand it until you've played like all of the basic iterations of hands over and over and over again what is good against what deck and what is just not going to get there yeah yeah and i think that's an excellent point for sure for me i felt like i had a breakthrough in mulligans like a a while back and the breakthrough wasn't that i understood it better but the breakthrough was trusting my instincts in Mm -hmm. understanding how this was going to play out right and that that instinct was developed by all of the testing that I had done. Yeah, it, it definitely depends a lot on the experience that you have with the deck and knowing how those games are going to play out just by looking at the opening hand, right? Yeah, and, and I think a lot of that does come from that sort of unconscious understanding. Like, it's hard to look at a hand and go, okay, does this, like, you know you're playing Tron. Does this hand beat a Walking Ballista hand? Does this hand beat an All is Dust hand? Does this hand beat a Turn 2 Thought Not Seer? Like, you don't run through all of those iterations and then figure out, like, what percentage of your opponent's hands this hand can beat. You just look at it, you think about what your plan is, and you think about, you know, maybe what they're likely to do to you, but it's 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 more of a, a gut from having run it over and over again. Yeah, definitely. Right, and you know, sometimes you, you look at a hand that's like really close and you'd be like, okay, what's my opponent likely to do? If you're playing against elves, then they're probably going to be doing the same thing every game. They're going to play a mana dork into either a archdruid or a bunch more creatures, uh, and then they're going to cast Collecting Company, and then you're going to die to Azuri, right? That's like pretty much how elves in modern plays out most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> 95% of the time. Right, when you're looking at your hand, you have to be like, all right, can I beat that? Or am I just going to have to look for something else that, that's going to do better? Right, and because if your opponent's not doing that, so you, you're, you, the way that you can think about it is like, okay, if they do this, which is very likely, then I need to be able to, to have game here. And if they're not going to be doing that, it almost doesn't matter what hand you keep. You're probably, as long as it plays well in its own proactive strategy, it's probably going to be pretty good against them not enacting their game plan yeah yeah and i think that's particularly that that way of looking at it is very important for those linear decks that that try to do almost the exact same thing every time it breaks down a little bit and gets much tougher when you're playing against like one of the jundi decks or or grixis death shadow or even tron that that sort of have a, several different plans they could hit you with uh yeah yeah for sure these are the kind of the things that i think about when i make my melody decisions and it's it's so tough to like, I, I wish I could just, like, go off on a spiel about mulligan decisions and teach you everything I know, but I think the reality is that you just need to practice and, and understand your deck and understand how you believe that the hands are going to play out when you're looking at them. Yeah, well, if nothing else, that should provide some pretty good article fuel. Potentially, yeah, for sure. I was, I was thinking about that. I wrote an article about philosophy on deck choice that should be going up on Star City on Wednesday which could be fun. Cool, cool. But yeah, for sure. Awesome. Oh yeah, I think, so I guess we didn't actually announce this on the podcast because due to uh, stupidity and carelessness on my part, we actually <laughs> lost the podcast from last week. I've already apologized to Collins for that, oh, but I no, don't apologize yeah. to everybody else. But yeah, so so you are writing for, so we didn't announce this because of that, but you oh, are yeah. writing for Star City Games right now. Yeah, I am now a weekly columnist on select Star City Games, so be sure to check me out every Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, I, I will be reading, so Excellent. hopefully... 
Hopefully everybody else will too. <laughs> yeah, hopefully I can bring some insight. The The article I wrote this week, I'm actually a little nervous about it. I don't know how it's going to go over because it's essentially kind of like taking the concept of play the best deck and breaking that down and figuring out what that means and figuring out why it's pro- people are probably misinterpreting that a lot of the time. Um, mm. Read the article, you'll find out. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I I don't even know exactly where you'd be going with that, but so yeah, I will, I'll definitely be reading that article. Awesome. So I mean, I was gonna ask you like, where do you think your success came from? You know, this this past weekend and, and two weeks before that to not drop a match in, in like three tournaments. <laughs> Sounds like most of your successes come from mulliganing, but I don't know, like healthy breakfast, good deck choice, just like people not anticipating humans. Like um, any any other secrets you got? People aren't respecting humans, I don't think, as much yeah. as they should be. But at the same time, I think that you know people are a little bit shifting to beat it. I had excellent mirror tech. I was mm-hmm. playing a Riders of Gavany in the sideboard of my humans deck, which I was <laughs> finally able to utilize. So I played it against... It's, so for those who don't know, Riders of Gavany is a 4-mana, 3-3 Vigilance, and when it comes to play, you choose a creature type, and all of your humans get protection from that creature type. You know, powerful modern staple card. Oh, of so course. If you don't know yeah, what that powerful, does, then... powerful draft rare. <laughs> But yeah, if you resolve that in the human's mirror, you just win. Because it has vigilance, and you, as long as you have you know equal number of creatures in your opponent, you just attack them for three every turn, and they lose. And if you have Manus Riders as well, then the clock is much faster, which is hilarious. Yeah. Um, or if you just like already have <laughs> lethal on board when you play it, then they just die on the spot. It's pretty gross. It probably doesn't take long to have lethal dealing three or six unblockable vigilance damage every turn. Right, for sure, for sure. And then you can just swing out, and there's nothing really they can do about it. But uh, the other card that I had in my sideboard was two dismembers, which is new. So if you're playing Riders of Gavany, don't get blown out by your opponent's dismember. Mm, yeah, that's true. That's very important. So if you think that they might have it, don't go for that all-out swing because you might uh, it might go poorly for you <laughs> if they dismember your <laughs> guy that's giving all of your dudes protection and then they eat your team. But yeah, that card was great. It's really good against Merfolk, Elves, Eldrazi, Humans... So it's not, it's not really that narrow. Uh, it's just really good against any of the tribal decks. Yeah, it's really weird how many tribal decks are in this like super high-powered format with like 60 sets in it or whatever. Yeah, um, I think probably part of the reason of that is that the card pool is so vast that we're going to be finding some broken synergies in the tribal context. Yeah. That's probably part of it. But yeah, so Riders of Gavany was... I played it in the semifinals match in Game 3 in the mirror against humans. And uh, it was it. It was, it was, it was just over. <laughs> Got him. Yep, that's, that is very silly. That's maybe one of the sillier ways that anybody's been gotten modern. Right, and it was funny because, you know, there were, it was the semifinals, so the judges were kind of like sitting there in between the two matches playing. And I played that, and the judge across from me was was like a little confused and then the judge next to me was just like just just wait you'll you'll see (laughs) and i was like yeah (laughs) um and my opponent had to pick it up and read it and and then got very sad (laughs) that's a depressing like you read the card and the text of the card is sorry you're not making it to the final (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i'm a pretty big fan of cards like that that are just like you know really tech and just like break certain matchups wide open uh but yeah i don't know I don't really know what to say. I feel like I've said a lot about this uh, this human stack, and 
mulligan decisions, and I'm still winning with it. So who else wants to win? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> you know you want to. I do. I yeah. have been. It's great. It's very very strong. So as long as yep. as long as you know how to you know name appropriately with meddling mage, which is probably the hardest part about the deck. It is really difficult. Yeah. That's. It's tough. So meddling mage, you know, if you can if you can mulligan well and if you can name well with meddling mage and you're decent at combat math, humans is the deck <laughs> for you for sure. You mean you don't just attack with everything every turn? Um, well, that's been okay, maybe ninety percent of the time you're attacking with everything every turn. But like, you know, sometimes you're playing in creature combat matchups and you got to think about it. Right, right. Sometimes they have a thought I see here in play and you you got to make decisions. Yeah, but the decision is normally turn your. 6-6 six, six champion of the parish sideways. <laughs> right, and then it's a 7-7 seven, because seven you have a noble hierarch and it's just too big. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Humans are great. I've uh, been having a lot of fun. I'm super excited for uh, Pro Tour Rivals of Ixalan, too. Yeah, yeah. I Hopefully you will still be able to play humans when that rolls around, but yeah. if not, I'm, I'm sure you'll be prepared one way or the other. But speaking of Pro Tours, yeah. uh, we had one this past weekend. <laughs> oh yeah, there was that going on. yeah. Um, so have you have you gotten a chance to get, get through those decks, do some standard testing? I know you got GP Atlanta coming this week. Yeah, so I was just able to kind of get started on that m- this morning. And so I'm still very early in my testing process, but I have been looking mm-hmm. at it and I did watch some Pro Tour coverage. So I do know what's going on for the most part, for sure. So I figure we'll talk about the tournament itself for just a minute, and then we'll we'll go pretty deep into the the deck lists and the format that showed up. Yeah, for sure. Funny story about this pro tour this weekend is that for the past couple of weeks, maybe my roommate Jeremy has been kind of preaching Seth Manfield, and he's like, he's just <laughs> too good at magic. He just kind of sits there and doesn't really care about you know looking good or anything. He just beats people all the time. And yep. he said this, like, at Nationals and, like, you know, at some Grand Prix recently. And uh, just it's it's just funny for me and my experience hearing that a bunch leading up to this weekend. And then Seth just crushes the tournament. Yeah, I, I, that, I guess that is kind of the impression I get, too. Like, he just, he sits there, he tunes everything out. Like, it doesn't matter if he's, like, rocking back and forth or whatever. It doesn't matter how many cameras are in his face or people yeah. asking him questions. Like, he's just... He's always going to be, like, leaning back a little bit at an angle, and his cards yep. are going to be at, like, a 20-degree angle from the edge of the board, and he's just going to be beating people. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so, you know, super congrats to him. Uh, Well-deserved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Played super well all weekend. Deck choice was on point. And, and, I, and he's been playing super well for a very long time. You know, he, he's obviously won a world championship before, but a, a PT win has probably been coming for at least a couple of years. Yeah, definitely. And uh, what number of Pro Tour Top 8 is this for him? I think this is his fourth. I, I could be wrong on there. But he's definitely, he is definitely Hall of Fame qualified at this point. For sure. Uh, so super excited to hear that from him, for sure. But yeah. yeah, the tournament was uh, was a little a little crazy. The top eight had some some interesting moments. Yeah, definitely. I and I think I, I'm not sure how much of this was because some amount of inexperience in the top eight, but there were definitely some some misplays. And I don't want to like harp on people for making in game mistakes too much, especially that that level of pressure is something that I I don't know exactly how I would deal with it. And if even Mike Sigrist can pass up a lethal attack in game five of top eight match then anybody can do something like that so you know i don't want to jump on anybody too much for misplays 
Um, but it was it was interesting seeing like a, a fair number of miscues and 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 sort of misevaluations of what was going on in matchups. I wasn't watching live really during the top eight of the Pro Tour as much, but my yeah. phone kept on blowing up my team group chat. Like every once in a while, I would be like, "This top eight's insane! What are they doing? He just threw away the game!" <laughs> and I was like, "Whoa, what's going on?" Yeah, so so Mike Segrist had a from from what I heard though, Segrist was kind of sick all weekend. Oh, so okay, maybe not See, in I the best mind that. state. But still, he was the first seed, right, going into the top eight? Because I remember he was like the last X1 from what I saw. So he was definitely crushing it during the Swiss. But yeah, from what I understood, he he wasn't feeling well. And um, maybe that kind of caught up to him during the top eight. Yeah. Well, I mean, still getting there, is <laughs> staying X1 forever is pretty good uh, for a sick pro tour. So props to him for that. Oh, I no, guess. yeah. Huge, huge props. And if anything, I think it makes his accomplishment even that more impressive. Yeah, definitely. He also had the best hat that I've seen at a Magic tournament. So he had a, a an Eevee Pokemon uh, baseball cap worn slightly cocked to the side. <laughs> you know, Mike Sigurist is a giant human being wearing a, <laughs> an Eevee Pokemon cap. It, Love it's it. a good look. Love I'm, it. I'm For into sure. it. So, so kind of storylines that I was pretty into at the tournament. Yamwing Chung, still amazing. Just the like amount of self-effacing... Totally humble. Like, like when he was, I, I think he was talking to BDM, um, giving him a rundown of one of the matches he played. He said, yeah, I had a Hazoret in play, but I had no cards in hand, so I could just attack with my Hazoret. So he's, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's definitely taking that in stride. And every match I watched, I, I don't know, he just seemed like he was having a great time, having a lot of fun with it. So I, I think I may be a Yamwing Chung fan for life at this point. Oh, definitely. Yeah, he's just one of those people who, like, you can invest in their character, right? Because they bring so much more to playing Magic, just, like, the good energy, right, that comes along with it. Yeah, yeah, there's just a joy to his Magic playing that I, you know, he, he doesn't get salty and stuff. Like, you, you saw him, like, knock the table when he made a misplay that absolutely cost him the match in a top eight. Mm-hmm. And, and that was the extent of his saltiness was he, you know, gets mad at himself for a second and then he's all smiles. I, he's, he just, yeah. he just brings, like, it is a game. It's a lot of, this game is so much fun and he, he embraces that joy and that's fun to watch. Definitely, definitely love that guy for sure. Samuel Eilenfeldt, first top eight, first pro tour, planned Mardu vehicles and played pretty much lights out most of the matches that I saw, I, I think it was clear that he was playing Mardu Vehicles because he knew how to play that deck rather than because, you know, it was the perfect deck for this tournament. But as it turned out, it was a decent deck for the tournament, and he made a lot of real good plays and, and totally deserved his top eight spot. Yeah. So props to him for that. Yeah, definitely. And it's always cool to hear, you know, somebody going to their first Pro Tour and doing well. It's just so such an insanely, insanely hard thing to do that it's always, you know, kind of, like, cool to see somebody be able to be able to do that and break through oh yeah at the end of his match with seth he gave him a high five he goes good match man your deck is sweet like, <laughs> like that is a, an awesome level of like the in-store fun magic brought to like the highest levels of magic that i, I really appreciate yeah yeah definitely I mean, just one last thing that I wanted to real quickly mention, um, and I again, I don't want to harp on people's misplays. Like, the top eight is a high-pressure situation, and, like, like missing... So, so um, John Rolfe playing against Pascal in the semis, um, playing Mono Red against Godfarer's Gift. Like, he missed a couple of things that were clearly just 
pressure situation things like missed pumps from uh, Angel of Invention and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, there's there's not a lot you can do. You got to pay attention to the board. There aren't a ton of lessons to be learned here. One interesting thing from the match was in a couple of games, he played so scared of the God Pharaoh's gift that it, it really cost him the game because all Pascal had to do was cast an Angel of Invention and then cast another of Angel of Invention. He could never keep up because he wasn't putting pressure on, mm-hmm. um, including like like not casting guys so that he could leave up uh, Scavenger Grounds when Pascal didn't even have a creature in his graveyard. Pascal only had God Pharaoh's Gift in his graveyard but had no Angel of Invention. And, and he didn't have enough mana that he could dump a creature in the graveyard and also bring back God Pharaoh's Gift with Refurbish because um, it was only turn three or four. I, I think he might have had a search, so he, he had a small shot of flipping a cart, flipping an angel into his graveyard and then refurbishing and, and, and then getting him. But the if you're playing Ramunep Red, if you're playing an aggressive deck like that, you need to take the lines that give you the ability to win the game and, and you need to... You, you know, play scared when you can afford to. It's really important to be able to evaluate when you have to stick your threats and just try to kill them. Right. Um, and I think that those macro miscues were really what cost him the match rather than the micro miscues of missing pumps on board or, or you know, spells that Pascal probably had in hand. Right, yeah. The I think that he was following a heuristic of I can't afford to get angeled here so much mm. that he forgot to pay attention to whether or not it was possible to get Angel, yeah. or likely even. Right. So, you know, he saw that his opponent had the the gift in his graveyard and just kind of, like, used that to key off his heuristic on, you know, I need I need to be able to prevent that from happening, like, a bit too much, right? Right. Um, right, and I think probably triggered by, like, a, ooh, I drew my uh, scavenger grounds that you know I don't really even deserve to have a hate card at this point in the matchup, but I do. So why don't I make the most out of it? Right, and right, I right. think that ended up costing him. Yeah, right. So so kind of like you know getting excited about that and then overlooking kind of the reality of what's happening in the situation. I actually uh, that's it's a good point that you brought that up because I I think that that's ha- something that happens uh, a lot to a lot of players where they uh, are are doing a concept that I like to call keeping count. I don't know how in depth I'm going to go into this, but here we go. Uh, so, like in when you're counting cards, right? You mm-hmm. need to keep count constantly from start to finish, right? Because if you lose track of count, then you have to start over. And that concept applies. And you're talking to magic. counting cards like in blackjack or something like right, that. Right? Yeah, counting cards in like, like blackjack or something. As the metaphor, where, where every new card changes the count, and then because mm-hmm. like so, if I presented to you a set of ten cards and said what's the count you could figure it out right you could just like go through you could look at all the cards and start from scratch and figure out what the count is at the end of it yeah if i show you them like one at a time then you can keep count like you know as we go and then so as you're like looking and digesting this new information then i like Mm -hmm. slam a new card down and then you can immediately tell me what the count is right but you know if i if I just like showed you those ten cards and then like put another one down and then I asked you what the count was, you'd you'd have to do it all again. So that concept applies a lot to magic, where it, when you're playing your game of magic, you are kind of like keeping track of what's going on and what's important and what your game plan is, like from the very beginning, and it's kind of like developed from the very beginning. But if I took you and I sat you down in a chair and there is a match of magic in progress that you need to be playing now. 
it's going to take you forever to kind of like digest this new information, figure out what's going on and look at your hand and figure out what you, your game plan needs to be. It's going to take you so long to figure that out. But, you know, people in the moment are like in that game. Um, right, and, right, because they built from the base. Right, and kind of like similarly with that concept, I think that uh, people like are in their game, they're keeping count of what's going on in the game, and then sometimes they draw a card that like has potential to change your game plan, and at least for me, I've noticed that whenever I draw something that's like, ooh, whoa, I wasn't counting on this, this might like change everything... I so often divert from the plan that I had when I was keeping count of what was going on in the game, and I'm like, ooh, yeah. look, a shiny, I'm going to go with this now, and I'm going to do this thing, and I never, I don't, like, stop and pause enough to reassess and be like, all right, is this thing actually so good that I need to slam it, or should I just continue with the game plan that I know is already, you know, working relatively well? So I think that he probably had one of those moments where he he's playing his game plan, he knows really well how his mono red deck needs to function in order to beat his opponent. And then he drew this new shiny thing, the scavenger grounds, and was like, all right, I'm all in on this. I'm going to hold it up for the rest of the game. And Pascal was able able to like easily capitalize on on him messing up his game plan because he saw something shiny. Yep. I, and, and this is not to harp on John Rolfe. Like, we're talking about this because we've both done exactly this. Oh, yeah. Right? I think that's like a very, very common trap that everybody falls into, for sure. I, I I recognize the mistake he was making because it's identical to mistakes that I've made in the past. Right, right. And, and that's the only reason that I saw it and went, ooh, I think this is going to cost him. Because I've, I've been there. For sure. Uh, that That's kind of like a... You know, a good recap of, of the whole tournament in terms of what we saw and stuff. But it's also, I think, yeah. good to talk about, you know, the, all of the decks and the format that we think is coming out of this. Yeah, we still got a standard to talk about. Got at least a, a GP or two. And, yeah, plenty of time to keep playing with these cards. And it looks, it's the metagame certainly looks more exciting than the world's metagame. That is for sure. Yes, for sure. Yeah, worlds is typically a little, you know, inbred in terms of, you know what people are bringing they they it's only 24 players and they can pretty much guess what other people are doing so but yeah this is a this is a pro tour format now and uh i think it's got some interesting things going on for sure yeah just to give the the quick rundown and then probably we'll go into you know decks a little bit more individually we still kind of have the pillars of the format being teamer energy ramming up red and some control decks there's a lot more variation there than there was at at something like worlds about 50 percent of the tournament was energy decks of some stripe whether that's teamer decks teamer with black or the straight up sultai decks like the one that uh seth won with so the those mid-range energy decks are the most important thing going on in the format but there's also a lot of subtlety to the different energy decks that i think we don't want to miss out on talking about Mm. And then there are a lot of decks, pretty much all of the decks outside of those three were fringy decks that were kind of built to capitalize on weaknesses of Teamer in particular. So whether that's God Pharaoh's Gift because it's just like going over the top of Teamer with more powerful stuff as quickly as it can, like like Pascal's deck was the Turbo God Pharaoh's Gift deck with, with all of the, with, with Refurbish. So whether it was something like that or Vampires that... that was a really sweet deck, uh, go-wide strategy that, that exploits Teamer's kind of inability to to deal with that, especially combined with pressure. Guillaume Matignon's deck that 
you know, is, is an approach deck game one, which is quite good against Teamer, but then switches to more of a creature-y Locust God plan to beat the negates and that sort of thing. So all of these other decks were really focused, like everybody knew how much Teamer there was going to be, and so all of the other decks in the tournament were kind of built to try to beat up on Teamer, which worked for some, worked less for others. Um, but that's the, the bird's eye view of the metagame, and then probably we should talk about individual decks and card choices for a reasonable amount of time. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good recap of, of kind of what, what we saw overall. Yeah, Teamer Energy definitely had a pretty huge percentage of the metagame, if, as long as you include the four-color energy into that, because the decks are pretty Which much is, the same thing. Yeah. Um, it's just Teamer Energy with Scarab God and now Vraska's. Like, it's not... Yeah. It's not doing a different plan or anything like that. Right, right. Um, so I think that it's pretty easy to kind of lump those into the same same category for sure. Yeah, I think that the the pretty cool tech that a lot of people were using was putting in Vraska's as like yeah. another way to go over the top a little bit. And also hate out the token stacks. I think that the fact that Teamer Energy was playing Vraska made it very, very difficult for any sort of token strategy to, to have any success, because that card is very good against their, what they're doing. Yeah, you just outvalue them by, by tokening even harder than they're tokening. Right. Or just, you know, the minus three of being able to kill a enchantment is just kind of lights out a That's little true. bit for, for the token stacks. Like, if, they're, if you're on a bunch of the doubling enchantment, but only one hidden stockpile, and you lose your hidden stockpile, then you just can't make any more dudes, and that can be pretty detrimental. Yeah, and I think that's a reason why we didn't see a lot of success from the uh, Anointed Procession-style token decks. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's just really brutal for them. Um, what we did see popping up every now and again was the Mono White Oketra's Monument Vampires deck, uh, that actually Philip Braverman, a North Carolina local, and yeah, and um, Wilson Hunter, as uh, and, and, well. and Wilson Hunter, yeah, yeah. I mean that deck was very sweet. I, I was I was pretty excited when I initially saw, uh, like on the coverage that you know they were getting some some press on uh, on coverage because I think that they did something like pretty unique and attacked the format from a pretty sweet angle where we're bringing back a catcher's monument and and what's like a good shell to put that in and then they kind of like built in this aggressive vampires deck with uh yeah. leading on metallic mimics and uh maverin fane i think is how you pronounce that to just like go really really wide so yeah i mean this deck was very interesting for sure uh and i it was one of the first things that i tested out a little bit yesterday and this morning yeah and i think it is you know it's clearly built to have the tools that it needs against Teamer. I, I think it loses a lot of its ability to crush Mono Red um, once all the Mono Red decks are running the four Rampaging Ferocidons that they probably should be running after this tournament. Yeah. Um, and, and and I think that against random decks, including like Sultai Energy, uh, it, it loses a lot of its power. When stuff like Dust to Dawn is not a card that's even good mm -hmm. um, against the Sultai decks the way that it's a, a complete bomb against the Teamer decks. Definitely the right deck for certain metagames, but not a deck that, you know, you just want to pick up because it's inherently powerful or anything like that. Yeah, I think that this deck was definitely a, a pretty hard metagame call uh, based yeah. on what they expected to see at the Pro Tour. After playing a little bit online and um, actually hearing from, from Wilson, 
he said that he's probably it's probably not a very good deck to bring to a Grand Prix just because there's gonna it's gonna be a wider field and the metagame's gonna yeah. shift a little bit. Unfortunately, I don't really see this being a big player moving forward, but definitely really really cool to see this uh, have success at the Pro Tour. Yeah, and I think they did pretty reasonably with it. I think they mostly converted at, at like. I think all five of the guys who were on it made day two, and then, you know, different levels of success with it overall. Yeah. Um, so, pretty cool. Um, yeah, I think that most of them had a pretty rough day two with the deck, uh, yeah. except for Wilson. He went eight and two with uh, the Vampires deck, which is excellent record at the Pro Tour. But yeah, the only other, like, six wins or more with the deck was Jaron Puzet. I'm also going to butcher yeah, his name, I'm sorry. sorry but, I'm sorry, uh, Jaron. I don't know how to pronounce your name either. He had six wins, but surprisingly, you know, despite the 100% conversion rate, um, the Vampires yeah. deck didn't put any results up further beyond beyond those two players. And I, I think, I, I mean, there are a lot of reasons that could have happened. Like, if I were playing this deck, I would really not want to run into, like, Seth Manfield's Sultai Energy deck. Um, with all those hostage takers and creatures that you you know you can't sideboard in dust till dawn you're you're relying on your your guys actually beating them and there's just too much value coming out of that deck uh, to do that reliably I think and uh, walking ballista in particular is a beating against yeah deck. yes yeah. yeah that and that's that that is the third thing that I was searching for I absolutely walking ballista uh, is not no monument deck wants to play against walking ballista yeah right yeah so the uh, right I, I I just don't think that that it's going to see much play moving forward, unfortunately. Yeah, too bad. It is really sweet. I, it, I think it's something to keep in a back pocket, especially with another set with a, that might have a vampire or two for the deck. And since Teamer Energy is never going to completely go away, it's definitely something to think about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, the, the metagame might shift back into a place where it, you know, it does that, but we'll see. Yeah, but I yeah I, I would not like sleeve this deck up and play it this weekend right. if I were going to Atlanta. So one thing that I kind of want to talk about is the kind of arms race and rock, paper, scissors thing that is kind of going on with the energy decks. Um, so I, I'm just going to give my like interpretation of what's going on with them, and then if you disagree, uh, like absolutely don't let me get away with it. Or, but, sure, sure. Uh, yeah. So you've got sort of standard teamer energy, which is Rogue Refiners, World of Virtuosos, Cubs, four times Glorybringer, maybe some other five, removal spells, uh, Servant of the Conduit. Um, that's like the base level one energy deck. Then to beat it, you have a, a couple of different strategies out of teamer. You can either splash black and run Scarab God and, and now Vraska. And the Vraska, I think in large part is in a response so, so the initial Black Splash was just for Scarab God. Um, we saw at Worlds that the Confiscation Coup strategy was very powerful against that. Um, and, and so a lot of people were leaning heavily on, on Confiscation Coup for the mirror, keeping their mana a little cleaner, not running the swamp. And so that, that was a way to beat the just Scarab God method of going over the top. Um, and I think that the Vraskas are in part a response to those Confiscation Coups. But once you get up to that level of so few glory bringers, so few chandras. I think that these four color energy decks were really vulnerable to a deck like Seth Manfield's that's running value cards like Hostage Taker. Um, that once you don't and, and value cards like Hostage Taker, uh, Glint Sleeve Siphoner, and Winding Constrictor, 
which once you don't have to worry about Chandra coming down on turn three or four or Glory Varner coming down on turn four or five and just ruining your day um, because these teamer decks are have, obviously have to trim on those Glory Bringers in order to run these other expensive cards, then decks those, those value cards gain a ton of power. Um, and I think that this Sultai deck did a good job of responding to and preying on the current iterations of the four-color energy deck. Um, so one thing that I think that's important to consider going forward, if you want to play Teamer, you may be in a better spot by going as hard as you can on the Glory Bringers and the Confiscation Coups. Like, I really like BBD's deck. It's very clean. It's very basic. Um, you went eight and two. And it's, it's just Glory Ringers and Confiscation Coups as his fives. Uh, something like Piotr Glogowski's deck too that's leaning on, that, that's leaning on Sky Sovereigns. Uh, that, that's an interesting tool as well. Although he is black, so he's got those same sort of weaknesses by having Scarab God. Uh, Sky Sovereign has a weird little dance it does with Hostage Taker where you want to be the, the person who casts yours last. Yeah. Um, that, I, I guess I'm really just more of a fan of these clean three-color teamer energy decks that are running all of the glory bringers they possibly can. If you're on the other plan, like be be prepared for hostage taking to happen to you. I guess is is what I'm saying here. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that you had a pretty good assessment there of what's going on. The trick is where on that wheel you want to end up, right? The further you turn that wheel into, you know, being more bent on like beating the mirror the 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 worse you are against the just like the the cleaner versions as as to what you were saying that are just more tuned to just be generally good against a lot of stuff but still have tools Mm -hmm. for competing in the mirror so yeah i mean i'm i've always been a pretty big fan of sky sovereign and i was excited to see that a little bit over the course of the weekend just because you know everybody's struggling to figure out like what the best mirror breakers are and everything and sky sovereign's just kind of always been an excellent mirror breaker that uh in in any sort of like mid-range mirror so yeah and it's very very good as long as you don't get it hostage taker it's very good to you know follow up against a hostage taker to uh to be able to kill it and get your thing back and stuff so yeah uh personally i really like the sultai energy list as well um i think that it was probably one of the better choices for the pro tour weekend just because it had kind of all the tools that it wanted and it was taking advantage of the teamer lists kind of tuning themselves to beat each other. Sultai was able to be like more linearly aggressive with Winding Constrictor and Long Tusk Cub and Walking Ballista to just, just be able to play that game of beating down pretty hard very, very quickly. The teamer lists, I think, got a little too slow to be able to keep up with that a little bit, which was interesting. Right, right. We saw a lot of teamer decks falling behind to turn two, Winding Constrictor, turn three anything that this deck can play on turn three right 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 so yeah for sure you know if you if you can't really keep up with the long test cub becoming a an eight eight then right because right. you know sometimes your removal spell of choice is a braid or harness lightning whereas the sultai deck has access to fatal push which kills the cubs no matter what so it's kind of like an interesting tension that's going on with like you know how your removal suite lines up with the threats that are being presented yeah yeah definitely and then seth also got really paid off by having those Death Gorge scavengers in his sideboard and then playing against actual factual God Pharaoh's gift in the finals of the Pro Tour. So that that has to feel pretty good, made, having made that call, I think. Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, the, uh, the scavengers are definitely something that I think that you're just going to need in your sideboard if you're planning on playing any sort of green creature deck. 
uh, moving forward. Mm-hmm. Because the, the Godfather's Gift decks have proven themselves to, you know, be a pretty big, or not, not really big per se, but a, a definite threat in the metagame. So you need to be prepared for that for sure. Yeah, and especially if you're going to, you know, a smaller, like, regional level tournament. Like, people are going to show up and play decks that are cool, like this deck that attacks with a bunch of hasty 6-6 lifelink angels. Like, people love playing decks like this. you got to be ready for it. For sure. Pascal's build, in particular, is kind of the, the all-in version of the deck, which, you know, I'm mostly for. If you're going to play a deck, don't hedge. Uh, do your thing. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So it's 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 you know mill cards search for Azcanta, including search for Azcanta, only four different creatures in the main deck those being minister angel sacred cat uh, obviously champion of wits so these are all creatures that directly serve his game plan doesn't have any of the extra like kind of decent creatures to try to get the creature count up things like uh, seeker of insight or anything like that. Um, it's just the business creatures, I guess, and Sacred Cat, but Sacred Cat's still real good to bring back with God Pharaoh's Gift. And then the rest is just every way to get stuff into the graveyard, refurbish, God Pharaoh's Gift, uh, zero uh, gate to the afterlife, because that's just not this deck's plan. It doesn't have enough dudes for that. It only has the bare minimum of dudes. So pretty cool deck, uh, and obviously very effective just trying to execute its plan and go over the top of these mid-range creature decks, which I think was mostly very successful all tournament long. Yeah, kind of what this deck gets away from a little bit is having to run that density of creatures that I think makes the uh, the other versions of this deck more clunky, even. Like, if you look at the kind of like the, the blue-black versions or the Esper versions. They, they have to run just like a huge density of creatures to be able to turn on, to be able to search for the um, God Pharaoh's Gift. But this deck is just yeah. able to kind of ignore that and play more cantrips and almost feels more consistent because of that, for sure. It, it looked really consistent. There were so few games where he didn't have a God Pharaoh's Gift in his graveyard really early on. Right. Like it just was so much cycling through the deck. Um, yeah, so probably, you know, looking forward, I think that Gate to the Afterlife is, um, is something that we might even, not even need access to, and we can we, we should just be playing these uh, four God Pharaoh's Gift, four refurbished versions. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's a much cleaner plan. You know, if you're trying to build a God Pharaoh's Gift deck that has a lot of game against red decks, which might be a mistake, maybe just don't play a God Pharaoh's Gift deck if you're expecting a lot of red. But, you know, the lots of creatures plus gate to the afterlife plan is much stronger if you're trying not to get killed by creatures really early on. This is, I think, a much better plan when you're going over the top of Bristling Hydra decks. Yeah. So I guess last is probably talking about Ramunap Red where you want to be with this deck if you want to be on this deck at all the most successful like all of the successful red builds had some number of ferocidons at a couple of harsh mentors in the main deck just you were gonna play against energy a lot you want to be pre-sideboarded and i think that was the right call daniel fournier was running the full playset of ferocidons and i think one crasher I, i think crasher is just not good enough right now i think it's a liability more often it's a it's a three mana guy that often dies to a one mana spell it's not surprising the way that it used to kind of be and especially if you're going to play against any of these token decks or any of these god pharaoh's gift decks that have a lot of life gain or even just against team or energy a bunch of times uh frosted on is is kind of where you want to be at right now 
Yeah, I've I've actually heard a lot of split opinions about red in general and its place in the metagame. Some people have told me that they think that red just, you know, shouldn't be played right now because it just loses to teamer too much and teamers everywhere. But, you know, a lot of people have been, you know, looking at the very successful deck lists and saying hey, I think that red actually, if built appropriately, is really good against Teamer. Yeah. Just kind of like depending on how you decide to digest the numbers a little bit. Because you can look at the the red lists that came out of the Pro Tour and say, okay, look at the successful ones and they all share this like common trend or whatever on how they're built. But you can also easily look at just kind of like a... Like the percentage, like the the day two conversion rate percentage or estimated win percentages from the Pro Tour on red. Yeah. And then see that it's, you know, maybe not as good there. But I think that the problem there is that like all of the red decks were kind of lumped into one category. And right. uh, a lot of those red decks were probably misbuilt. Yep. Exactly. And that like tanked the percentages a little bit. But if you look at if you look at the decks that do have like the four Faras stunts in the main deck. I think that they're having a lot of success. I played a league, uh, or most of a league, kind of before we started streaming, and I haven't dropped a game yet with with the with one of these red decks. So I think it definitely still has a, its spot in the metagame, but uh, you just need to build it appropriately. Yeah, I, I think that's one hundred percent true. It's just tough because I it's hard to see like maybe almost all of the decks, maybe almost all of the mono-red decks that didn't convert. It was because they were full of on-crop crashers and they were just, you know, three-week-old decks that were not ready for the PT. Yeah. So hard to say. I do love the, like, three carries of four Rampaging on main deck synergy here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're taking, taking a lot of damage yourself, for sure. I actually played a game. I was playing the Mirror online earlier today, and... I I was just kind of like in the fast-paced moto mindset and I slammed my Ferdosidon main one and because I wanted F6 <laughs> and then I attacked with my carry Zev and Perfect. I took damage and I was like, uh, oh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> uh, it is kind of funny how the disenergy there exists. One thing that I really like about Red's positioning, depending on how the format plays out, I've always been a little on the fence about the go big plan where you just like do a bunch of Chandra's and glory bringering uh, and, and like bring in a land or whatever your thing is. I, I don't, I think that depending on the build of Teamer, that's often not the right plan against them. Uh, especially now if they've got Scarab Gods and stuff, I, I, I've said before, I really don't like that plan at all. But if Sultai becomes a big player in the format, then I love having access to Glorybringers and Chandra's out of the sideboard. I also love having access to lots of Abrades because a, a big part of the metagame right now, I think, popped up due to a lack of Abrades in the format. It's hard for Godfarer's Gift to succeed unless people are cheating on those. Yeah. Um, it's hard for Winding Constrictor to be great unless you know people are taking a couple of the three damage spells out of their deck. So... Red has options, and I think if you pick the options correctly and if the format plays out in a way that, that allows Red to capitalize, it can be in a pretty good spot, you know, this weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to continue to test it mm -hmm. and kind of, like, see what conclusions I can draw from there, maybe tune it myself. I think that as long as you have a good plan in all the matchups, you can probably succeed with it, but it's really important that you don't just, like, 
pick up a 75 of red and that you think will be good and then just like try to wing the sideboard plans. I think that in order to have success, particularly with this red deck, you need to really, really have a good idea of what your game plan needs to be in all of the particular matchups that we're seeing right now. Yeah. You are playing weaker cards, you know, on average than most of your opponents are. So you got to know what you're about and you got to be making those decisions for a reason. Right. So yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be continuing to test that, I think, for the, for the time being. But I'm definitely excited about a bunch of stuff for this weekend. I mean, it, it just won and that may be you know, why I'm tilting towards it. But I, I'm definitely pretty pumped about that Sultai deck. Oh, yeah, same. I think that that deck probably, just like based on all of the numbers, despite just winning, mm-hmm. kind of showed that it was one of the dominant performers in this previous weekend. Which makes sense. Brad Nelson on the team that developed that for this weekend and, and decided to go with it. So, you know. Yeah, if you see Brad Nelson playing something in standard, you should definitely take notice because he knows what's up. <laughs> Right, especially in, in a week 10 standard or whatever the heck we're in now. Like, Jeez. that's... Yeah. This is going to be an interesting Grand Prix. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of cool decks now. This Pro Tour definitely threw a big old wrench into stuff. But at, at least in in terms of, like, individual card choices and, like, what, what could be around. Not so much in, like, coming up with a bunch of super neat new decks or anything like that. Although I am still going to be trying to, to get one of those neat new decks and, and, and brewing and playing it, but uh, I think that's kind of the angle okay. I like to take most of the time. Any ideas here? Anything you're thinking of? The the next step for me testing is actually going to be a Bant Ramp deck. Uh, Ooh, okay. With Hour of Promise and Approach to the Second Sun. Is this featuring Sandworm Convergence, perhaps? It might be. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah, I've heard rumblings is all. The uh, the Sandworm Convergence in the deck seems like super powerful in some matchups in particular Sultai. The problem becomes mm-hmm. though that post board they get access to counter spells. So, yeah. Resolving a Sandworm Convergence becomes very very difficult. I am typically a fan of making your opponent's sideboard cards not line up well against you right and i just don't know really what that looks like with this new bant ramp deck aside from four regal caracals which i'm definitely willing to shoehorn into a deck yes yes but then you need something to kill them with yeah um, and yeah. it needs to be a creature right regal caracal is... is not something that's going to close the game out on its own it's it's got to be backed up by other other end games right so you're trying to turn off their negates and duresses again Right, right, right. Which actually is something I, I want to talk about for just, w- like, one minute. But I think it was something that is kind of a basis for the format. And then also um, something that, that uh, yeah, uh, Matignon executed particularly well. Which is, like, choosing the right card type for your threats. This is one of the things we saw with, with Energy, in particular, like, the adoption of Raska and also Nissa's Steward of Elements as like kind of big over-the-top cards that specifically don't get stolen by Confiscation queue and don't get Essence scattered, mm. because in that matchup, it, it's all about the creatures, so switching it up and, and providing non-creature threats became really important. The total opposite of that is what Matignon was doing, which is, you know, he's an approach deck game one, but the vast majority of his game two, games two and three that we saw on camera, he was winning with the Locust God. So, uh, like, that's... 
you know, that was embracing like kind of exactly the philosophy that your uh, ramp deck that, that you uh, made the finals of GPDC in because, uh, you, know, you know, taking out the, the non-creature spells because that's what they're targeting because you're a deck with a ton of non-creature spells, hitting them with threats that they aren't expecting. Uh, and I think the Locust God was just an awesome unexpected threat that, that really nobody saw coming and then I think ate a lot of people who were not ready to get beaten by it. So props to him for that. But, but the, the ultimate takeaway from this is, yeah, understand what your opponent is sideboarding against. And if you can make your deck a, a deck that's not as vulnerable to that, um, that's a really powerful thing to be done. So right. I, I'm totally all for that. Yeah. Yeah, anything that you can do that takes advantage of your knowledge of your opponent's plan, it, I think is, is very, very good. So definitely definitely worth uh, thinking about that when deciding you know how to construct your deck post sideboard and, and like what what sideboard cards you, you're looking for for sure yeah yeah definitely and I'm trying to think of you know replacements for oblivion sower or whatever for your ramp deck but <laughs> not really coming up with a... yeah oblivion sower was definitely a unique tech there and I think that the other one also rotated out which was Ovenwald Hydra? Yeah, Ovenwald Hydra. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's gone, and the reason that card was good is gone, which is the uh, the Temple of the uh, Forsaken Gods. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be having to look into some new new tech there, for sure. I, I don't know exactly the build of your deck. If you're running all those Gifts of Paradise and stuff, then maybe something like the Locust God could actually be okay. Because uh, once you can like activate it twice in a turn, then you're doing something very powerful. I don't know. Yeah. I did see, however, this crazy 5-0 list that is, it looks like Jund Ramp, almost, and its payoffs are all over the place. It's essentially a <laughs> ramp deck, but it's playing, there are no four ofs except for Gift of Paradise, and it's playing a Wild Wanderer, two Glory Bringers, a Chef at Monitor, a Sifter Worm. Uh, uh, one Vraska, one Torment of Hailfire. Oh my god. Three Hour of Devastations, three Hour of Promise, three Star of Instinction. Three, wow, that's... A Cruel that Reality, and two Sandworms Convergence. <laughs> and that's okay. and that's just I what mean, we have in the main. In the sideboard, it's got a Nicol Bolas. <laughs> like, what? Well, of course it <laughs> does, happening? why wouldn't it? Um, yeah, Meddling Mage is really bad against this deck. Yes, yeah, if you wanna if you wanna be meddling mage, just play a bunch of uh, weird wacky cards that I won't see coming, for sure. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I I did I do really like the look of this list just conceptually. I, I think it might be a little too all over the place, but, um, but hey man, right? There's ideas. If you want to yeah. play some sifter worm, it's probably pretty good against red. But I don't know. Sifter Worm being the 7-mana seven 7-7 seven, seven Trample. Uh, when it comes to play, you scry 3 and then reveal the top card of your library and gain life equal to that card's converted mana cost. Hilarious with uh, Spring to Mind, because Spring to Mind is just a 9. <laughs> That's very true. I don't think I ever got a Spring to Mind revealed against me. I lost to Sifter Worm many, many times in that format. I don't think anybody ever gained 9 off of it, though. Um, so I guess I was spared that horrible, that horrifying experience in yeah, Limited. Right. But maybe it'll happen in Constructed. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe maybe I'll be doing that to the people this weekend. <laughs> that would be cool. I'd be into that. But yeah, I, uh, I thought this was an interesting list. Yeah, definitely goes along with the uh, you know approach from a different angle strategy that I, I it is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, 
Yeah, and we're getting to that point in Standard where there are a lot of developed decks. The metagame is super known, and uh, there is room to try to accurately predict and exploit what is going on. So I'm definitely for, you know, if you can figure out what's going there. And maybe something, you know, maybe Sifterworm is the truth, but but maybe something rampy um, could get there against especially these mid-range decks. So right. I, I, yeah. I think it's good to keep looking out. Yeah, I mean, when the format kind of devolves into a bunch of mid-range mirrors, I think that it's often good to go over the top, I think is a pretty easy answer to mid-range. Because mid-range is yep. pretty solid about beating up on decks that are trying to go under it, right? But, you know, going over the top with some sort of ramp strategy or control strategy is typically pretty good. But this mid-range deck in particular is showing very good resilience to control decks, so... Maybe a different angle is right. needed. Yep, I agree. So good luck figuring that out. Hopefully you hopefully you get to something neat over the weekend or over the week. But if not, then I you know, maybe you just play the best red deck that you possibly can and hope it gets you there. Yeah, we'll see. I, I think I'm very far away from being able to make any statements about what I'm gonna be playing this weekend. I'm currently looking yeah. at red a little bit, but definitely a lot of other things on the on the docket. Cool, well, uh best of luck. I you know, hope it gets you there. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Again, sorry for missing last week. It won't happen again. I've put into place a couple of hopefully safeguards that make sure that the mistakes that I made don't happen again. Um, so we can be with you every week from now until the end of time. <laughs> Excellent. I'm in. Check us out online. Uh, you can follow the podcast at, at MTG underscore Grindcast. Uh, you can follow Collins as well. At Collins Mullen. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you guys next week. Sounds good. Thank you.